Today we're beginning a new series, uh, launching into the Gospel of Luke. I have no idea how long it's going to take us to get through Luke. Uh, I know that there will be a few breaks uh, in the middle, uh, and, and we won't plow straight through it, but, uh, but we'll be here for a while. Uh, and so as we get settled in to this Gospel, uh, it's always a question, at least in my mind, maybe in yours as well, uh, when we transition from studying one portion of Scripture together to another, well, why this? Why now? With all the wide counsel of God's word and all the wisdom that he has for us, why this gospel? Um, and I think uh, J.C. Ryle, uh, as usual, says it much better than I could. And I think catches the sentiment of why are we going to spend some time reading and studying the gospel of Luke? Stories that very well, uh, certainly you know uh, very well already. Things that you've heard things that you're acquainted with, and yet we're going to hear them again. Here's what J.C. Ryle has to say. He says, It would be well if professing Christians studied the Gospels more than they do. No doubt. All Scripture is profitable. It's not wise to exalt one part of the Bible at the expense of another, but I think it should be good for some who are very familiar with the epistles if they knew a little bit more about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, why do I say this? I say it because I want Christians to know more about Christ. It's well to be acquainted with all the doctrines and the principles of Christianity. It is better to be acquainted with Christ himself. It's well to be familiar with faith and grace and justification and sanctification. They're all matters pertaining to the king, but it is far better to be familiar with Jesus himself, to see the king's own face and to behold his beauty. This is one secret of eminent holiness. He that would be conformed to Christ's image and become a Christ-like man or woman must be constantly studying Christ. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to begin today in Luke. We're going to read just the first few verses of his introduction uh, before we finally begin to start in the narrative, Lord willing, next week. Uh, but this is what we're going to be doing over the next few months few years, perhaps, we are going to be studying Christ, looking to our Savior, gazing on the face of the King, and praying that the Lord would make us more like Him. So before we begin today in Luke, we're going to pray. You can find that reading on page 855, if you picked up a Bible on the way in. Today, reading Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. But before we do, please join me as we pray together. O oh Lord, our gracious God, we would see Jesus. We pray that as we come to study this gospel account of our Savior, you would show him to us. You would show him in bold relief, that we would see him with eyes of faith and believe in him, with hearts steadfast in your word. O oh Lord, you need to overcome our sinful unbelief in order for that to happen, and so we pray that you would. Continue to break away the shards and, and pieces of our stony hearts. Continue to cause us to look to Jesus, our Savior. Continue to cause us to find rest in Him and the message of salvation that we have in Jesus. We pray that you would do this for your namesake, and we ask it in His name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in the gospel according to Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, 
just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and an errant word. May he add a blessing that's reading into its hearing. You may be aware uh, that there are essentially two kinds of people in this world. There are those who begin a book by dutifully and carefully reading the introduction. They prepare themselves for everything they're about to digest. And then, on the other hand, there are those that have no time for introductions. The same people who like to exercise without stretching. The same people who like to go to a fancy restaurant and have an expensive meal and forego the appetizer. If you are in the second category, the non-introduction category, I promise that I will pray for your sanctification. But (laughs) in the meantime, in the meantime, you need to know that introductions can be very, very important. Case in point is the introduction to Dead Souls. Dead Souls is a Russian novel written by Nikolai Gogol. It's about landowners, and it's about serfs, and it's about this uh, scheme by a man to reinvent himself as a gentleman. And it's great fun. It's, It's good. But if you simply jump into the book without reading the introduction, by the time you get to the end, you're going to be lost. That's because Dead Souls is typically published with two parts in the same volume, two parts. And, uh, and as you move from part one into part two, you're going to notice some things. You're going to notice that there are holes in the plot. You're going to notice that certain thoughts break off mid-sentence. You're going to notice footnotes telling you that the manuscript is missing. Now, of course, if you had just read the introduction, you would know that Gogol actually, originally, intended to tell his story in three parts. The first part was published in 1842. And after it was published, Gogol became a literary hero in Russia. Shortly after, while he was working on part two, he became deeply and devoutly involved in the Russian Orthodox Church. Now, the introduction to the Penguin's classic edition, which you may have on your shelf, tells us uh, his friends, quote, were aware of his turn toward religion, and many feared that it would destroy his gifts as a writer. Well, he did struggle with part two for the rest of his life. He tossed his first version of the manuscript for part two into a fireplace in 1845 out of frustration. But he began again, and it seemed like things were getting better. He even took uh, his second version of part two and presented it in some private readings to some of his friends in his home. But everyone saw, and Gogol saw himself, that it was simply not up to the standard of the first part. And he became depressed. He became despondent and disturbed by his attempts. And in 1852, he again threw his manuscript into the fireplace. And he sat there and he waited while his servants were trying to get him uh, to pull it out or to do something, but he caused them, he told them to wait until the fire had died down and it had been reduced to ashes. And when the fire died down, Gogol went to bed, weeping. And there he stayed, refusing food until he died ten days later. Now, All we have of part two is what remains in a few of the scattered fragments that have been found among his papers. And if you had simply read the introduction, you would know 
that there's more to the story than simply the words on the page. There is an angst. There is a turmoil tied into the paragraphs that he wrote and the fragments that we have left over. It changes the way you read the story to understand something of what was going on in the mind of the man who wrote it. The same is true for the Gospel of Luke and for the introduction that we have here. It changes the way that you read this narrative that we're about to begin when you know what was going through the mind of the man who wrote these words. But this introduction is doubly important because Luke was not the only author of this book. He was an instrument shaped by the Holy Spirit and his writing and his concerns and the things that were important to Luke were shaped by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so that means that when we're reading what was important to Luke, we are also seeing what was important to the Holy Spirit as we read this book. And it also means that unless what was important to the Holy Spirit also becomes important to us over the course of the next 24 chapters, we'll be wasting our time as we read it. So today, as we look just at this short introduction, it's only one sentence in the Greek, one long and convoluted and complicated Greek sentence. But it's only one sentence in the Greek, and as we read it, we are going to look to see what is important to the Holy Spirit, what is important to Luke in this gospel, and what ought to be important to us. Now, it's not going to surprise you that out of this one sentence, I have managed to squeeze three points. And I really do think that there are at least three concerns. Maybe you can find a few more later. There are at least three concerns that the Holy Spirit, writing through Luke, has for his people as we approach these four verses. And those three concerns are fullness and truth and assurance. What we need to see in this introduction is fullness and truth and assurance. Well, we begin with the fullness part. And there is a certain fullness to the story of Luke's gospel. That, that is, uh, to the way that he tells it and the details that he gives us. And, and this, in part, is what the church has loved about Luke's gospel for the last 2,000 years. We have some details in Luke that we cannot find anywhere else. Luke is the only one who tells us the stories of Zechariah and Elizabeth, who relates to us the appearance of Gabriel and the announcement to Mary, He's the only one who gives us a portrait of Christ as a youth in the temple. He's the only one who gives us the parable of the prodigal son and, and the story of Zacchaeus and so many others and the raising of the son of the widow of Nain. And there is so much here that we cannot find elsewhere. There is a beautiful abundance to the picture of the Savior that Luke is, is painting through his gospel. And that happens in part because he says in verse 3 that he has followed all these things closely for some time. He's traced them back all the way to their roots, and he wants to make sure that we do not let go anything that we need of the details of Christ. But even with all the fullness, even with all the detail that he does give us, the fullness that grips Luke is not a desire simply to tell us everything that we could know about Jesus. Not even everything that we would want to know about Jesus, because there is a lot that we want to know about Jesus that Luke doesn't include, nor does Matthew, nor Mark, or John. And this is one of the things that, that differentiates a gospel from a biography. 
Biographies want to show you the sum total of a person's life, what their home life was like growing up, what their fears were and their ambitions, what they did in those boring years before anybody knew who they were. And they, they try, biographies, good biographies try to wrap it all together and give you the most full picture possible of a person so you would know them and know their thoughts and the way that they lived in the world. And gospels are much more selective. They choose some accounts, they leave some out. And all of the gospel writers do it. And even if we took all of the details that we have in all four gospels, we still would not have an account of the vast majority of Jesus' life on earth. There's a lot that they leave out. And so there is a fullness to Luke's gospel, but it's not the most important fullness, just to give us a picture of Jesus. And that's because the most important thing about the gospels is not that they show us the fullness of Jesus' life. Rather, the most important thing about the Gospels is that they show us that Jesus Christ himself is the fullness of all that God has been planning to do in the history of creation since its founding. Jesus Christ is the climax and the culmination and the fullness of God's work in humanity. That is what captivates Luke. And that is what we need to see as we read this introduction. That's the point of verse 1. Luke tells us that many, he's not the only writer. Perhaps he speaks of other gospel writers like Mark or Luke. Perhaps they were simply people uh, who in their own communities knew something of Christ and simply had to write it down before they forgot it. But there were many others who wrote, he says, many who have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. We could perhaps translate that accomplished in a different way. We could say the things that have been fulfilled among us, the things that have come to completion among us. And there is this sense of climax in the coming of Jesus and in his ministry and his life and his death and resurrection and his seating at the right hand of the Father. Here is the pinnacle of all that the Lord has been doing in creation. Here in the gospel of Jesus Christ, is a climax to what God has been planning and preparing throughout all the history of existence. This is, in a sense, an Ephesians 1 moment. You remember in Ephesians 1 that it tells us that the Lord had a plan. Before the foundations of the earth was laid, the Lord had a plan for the fullness of time. The zenith, the pinnacle of what the Lord was doing, and his plan was to unite all things together under Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth, powers and principalities, that is the Lord's plan. And when Christ shows up, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom is here. And there's a fullness, there's a climax about the events that happen in Luke's gospel. You're going to see that pretty soon. Because as we go through, especially the first few chapters in studying the incarnation, we're going to hear through Luke's words the Lord speaking to his people and saying, I've sent my son as I promised. I am the God who remembers his people. He is the one who has come exactly as the prophets foretold. And now there is a culmination. Later on in our studies, we will get this, as this is really sort of the central thrust of the whole gospel at the end of chapter 9. You may recall that at the end of chapter 9, it says something very important, that the Lord set his face toward Jerusalem. Christ himself was looking toward the climax. And everything else fell to the wayside, preaching to, to 
cities that didn't want to hear him, and healings, and miracles, and everything else is put on the back burner because his face is set toward Jerusalem, because he's looking for that culminating point, that fullness, and that's what he's telling us. Luke is looking to Jesus, and he's saying he is the fullness of what God is doing, and this is what the universe has been holding its breath for. Now, I know some of you here aren't reading the King James. If you're reading the King James in the first verse, it reads a little bit differently, doesn't it? It says that people were writing uh, not about things that have been fulfilled, but rather the King James says uh, people undertook to write about the things which were most surely believed among us. Now, that's okay. It's not a manuscript issue if you care about that sort of thing. It's not a uh, Byzantine text versus Alexandrian text, if you even know what I'm talking about. It's not a textual variant. It's a translational issue. It's the same Greek. It's the same word behind it. And it really is the issue of how do we translate and how do we think of this idea of something in Jesus' ministry coming to completion. And the question is, are we talking about the fullness of events or are we talking about the fullness of faith? Have these events been fulfilled, or have people been persuaded? And quite frankly, either one kind of works. They're they're both okay translations, but here is the connection between those two, between persuasion and fulfillment. The point is, why in the world would a Gentile care to be persuaded about the things that have happened in Nowheresville, Judea, unless the things that have happened in Nowheresville, Judea, are much larger than this one tiny place in one tiny corner of a vast Roman Empire. Now, the truth was, Luke was fully persuaded of the things that he's writing about. And we'll see later, he wants Theophilus to be fully persuaded as well. But why? Who cares if you're Luke? Why be convinced of the importance of Jesus unless Jesus is important beyond the impact that he had among his own people? Luke was a Gentile. He was the only Gentile, by the way, who had a hand in the writing of the Holy Scriptures. That's a big deal. That is a seismic shift in the history of God with the world. Luke was a Gentile, and he became the constant companion to the apostle to the Gentiles. He traveled with Paul, and he stayed with Paul through shipwreck and through imprisonment and near starvation. Luke was a companion of Paul even when his own countrymen had rejected him. Even when false disciples left and fled, Paul writes at the end of 2 Timothy, Demas has deserted me. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. And so here is Luke, this Gentile. And he is bound to Paul. And he is bound to the message that the Savior, the Messiah of the Jews, is the Savior of the world. In Jesus, there is a fullness, not just in this one tiny little place, but for all peoples and for all times, he is the center point of all the Lord has been doing in creation. Today, we would talk about it in terms of a worldview. We'd ask Luke, Luke, how do you piece together your conception of reality? When you wake up and you put your feet on the floor every morning, how do you make sense of your knowledge and your experience and your hopes and your dreams and your fears and everything, the way that you look at the world, Luke, what's it all about for you? And Luke would say, it's about Jesus. 
It's all about Jesus. This Christ who came to live and to walk this earth, the Savior who was without sin, the one who gave his life as a ransom for many, who was raised again and is seated at the right hand of the Father on high. It's all about Jesus, he would tell us. When Christ came, there was a fulfillment of all that creation was waiting for. He's the touch point between God and humanity. He is the substance of reality. Now the question for us is, are we captivated with the fullness of Christ? Is he the center point of your life, of my life? Can we say together with Paul, Luke's friend, that for us to live is Christ? Are we captivated by him? Is he the center point of what God is doing in us? Do you have a burning desire to be found in him and to walk with him and to know more of him? Do you find your sweetest moments of rest in communion with Christ, sitting at his feet like Mary, drinking in the beauty of the King? Is that what you desire more than anything else in all the world? is to be with him in glory and to know him. Are we captivated with the fullness of Christ? Is he the center of our reality? This is the concern of the Holy Spirit, that all of God's people would be enthralled with Jesus and that we would know that he is the fullness of God's work in us. So here's the first concern in these few brief verses. The Holy Spirit, writing through Luke, is concerned that we would know the fullness of Christ. Secondly, that we would know the truth of Christ. You know, the way a person begins a narrative, a story, makes a great difference in the way that you listen to the rest of it. When somebody begins uh, a story to you saying, long ago in a dark kingdom, far off somewhere, you know what you're in for. You, you get ready for a parable, some sort of, some sort of make-believe, some sort of fairy tale. But when they begin their account and they're talking to you about eyewitnesses and facts that can be checked and other people and situations that can be cross-referenced and set one over the other, you know that you're not looking at a fable. You're not in the realm of myth. The person who is presenting their account to you is saying, this is true. And this actually happened. In fact, Luke seems to be almost inviting us, or at least he was inviting Theophilus to double-check what he was being told. Because above all else, Luke wants us to be convinced that this gospel really happened. It happened in space and time and history. Jesus really healed the blind and cleansed the lepers and raised the dead. Jesus actually preached good news to real people. Jesus literally died and was buried and was raised again. It happened. That's the point. Luke wants us to be utterly convinced of what one pastor calls the having happenedness of the gospel. It's reality. And that's, that's a central question, isn't it? Dale Ralph Davis has an analogy. He's a pastor that I like to listen to. He's also from western Pennsylvania, just a tidbit. But Dale Ralph Davis has an analogy that I think is, is simply too good not to use here. He says, imagine. Imagine that you are going to attend an Olympic diving event. 
And they've got that high platform that looks way too scary for anybody to be on. They've got that high platform, and the crowd is all there, and the judges are prepared to dole out their scores. And the athletes have prepared themselves. They have trained. They have practiced. Their tuck is flawless. They are ready to make the minimal splash with all the twists and the turns, and it's all in place, and it's all ready. But there's a question that needs to be asked, and that is, is there any water in the pool? Is there any water in the pool? Because if there is not, everybody else can go home. And you can chuck the rest of it. And there's no point even being there. And the truth of the gospel is the water in the pool. You can have a wonderful narrative about a powerful Savior and a beautiful message of life and forgiveness, but if it's not true, it doesn't matter. And we might as well chuck it in and go spend some other spend our time doing something else on a Sunday morning. That's what Paul said. If Christ is not raised, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Christ is not raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. If Christ is not raised, we are of all people most to be pitied and let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. This is the primary question. Did it happen? Can you trust it? And Luke is telling us with a resounding yes, Christ is real and living and strong to save. That's why throughout his gospel, he is going to give us the coordinates over and over again. He's going to triangulate the space and time and history so that we know that we're dealing in reality. He's going to tell us these things, you know, they happened when Quirinius was governor or maybe when Herod was Tetrarch, or in that tiny, brief window when both Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. That's when it happened, and he's going to give us the coordinates so that we know what we're dealing with. But he's also going to give us his sources. Notice, again, in verse 2, he tells us that his gospel stands on the shoulders of eyewitnesses, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. This is a big deal with Luke. Somewhat in the gospel, but, but mostly in the second book of the New Testament that Luke wrote. That is Acts. Luke also wrote the book of Acts, and it begins much the same way. Uh, in my first book, O Theophilus, I began to write to you of all that Jesus, uh, I, I wrote to you of all that Jesus began to do and teach. He's insinuating that he's still writing of what Jesus was doing and teaching, Except in the Chronicle of Acts, it happens through his eyewitnesses. It's a huge deal in the book of Acts that there are men who stood as eyewitnesses to these events. This is what the Lord says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He told his apostles, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's this idea of eyewitnesses. Were there people who saw this and could say that they had seen it and could be verified? In fact, after Judas had hanged himself and he was replaced, they had one prerequisite for the man who would take his place among the number of the twelve, and it was he must have seen all of these things. He must be an eyewitness from the very first of the things that we're going to proclaim. It was utterly important for the first century of the church that there were apostles who could stand as Peter stood 
before the Jews and before the scoffers, and they could say, we are eyewitnesses, and in fact, so are you. Because these things were not done in a corner. It's interesting that in the first few centuries of the church, nobody had the gall to do what they do now and say, you know, Jesus probably never even existed. That's the sort of thing that modern man can get away with. And nobody blinks an eye. But then they didn't say that. In fact, they didn't even deny that he did things that they couldn't explain. You know what they said about Jesus in his miracles in the first few centuries, the, the rabbinic teachers? They said he was a sorcerer. Why? Because he did miracles that they couldn't explain. And when they said, hey, there's an empty tomb, they didn't say, no, there's not. He's right there. Because we know the guy, because Joseph of Arimathea was one of us, and oh, actually, yeah, it is empty, isn't it? despite the Roman guards. And this is not the sort of thing that they tried to do because the apostles were able to say, we're eyewitnesses, and so are you. This is a big deal. And the apostles spoke of what they had seen and what they had heard and what their eyes beheld and their hands had touched. And so Luke says there are eyewitnesses. Those men who were the ministers of the word of God and Theophilus can track them down and ask them for himself. So friends, the Holy Spirit is saying to us today that he wants us to be utterly convinced of the truth of what we're about to read in this gospel. Let that be your approach. As we study this gospel, set it in your mind and your heart that when you read about Zacchaeus and Zechariah and when you hear about angels and demons and healings, and death, and resurrection, that you will believe and take it as more real than the breath that is in your lungs and the blood that is in your veins. Because it is. And if you are one of those many who finds it hard to believe some of the things that seem unbelievable in the gospel, make it your prayer that the Holy Spirit, who desires that his people would be convinced of the truth of these things, would make it so. Pray that the Lord would give you spiritual eyes to see and to receive the truth of the gospel. This is what the Lord wants for all of his children, is to know the fullness of Christ and to know the truth of Christ. And lastly, he wants us to have assurance in Christ. This is our third point. It is assurance. You know, as Luke writes to Theophilus, Theophilus, by the way, his name is a Greek name. He also was a Gentile, and his name means friend of God, or perhaps lover of God. But you notice toward the end, Luke writes to Theophilus, and he tells him the reason that he put all of this down in writing. Verse 4. He says, I've written these things to you, verse 4, that, so that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. That's what he wants for Theophilus. It's certainty. It's assurance in the things of the gospel. That's the goal. In fact, in this very long and very convoluted Greek sentence, the last word is certainty. It is the punctuation mark. It is the exclamation point at the end of all that Luke has written so far. This is what I want. This is what the Holy Spirit wants for his people. It is certainty and assurance. Now, there are two things that we need to know about this certainty. The first thing is that the gospel message is for Christians. 
That seems pedestrian. I, I know it, but stick with me here. When Luke writes to Theophilus, he proves that Theophilus was a good Presbyterian because he speaks to him of the things that he has been taught, and he uses the word catecheo. Anybody hear the Westminster Shorter Catechism Index? Now, of course, Theophilus wasn't a Presbyterian, and they didn't have the Westminster Shorter Catechism, but that's the idea. He's saying, you're acquainted with these things. You've heard them. You know them. You have been taught this stuff. Theophilus is not some pagan out there in the world that needs to be evangelized from the ground up. Luke doesn't write to him saying, I, I aim to convince you of these things you've never heard. No, he writes to him, he says, I want you to be confident of the things that you already know. I put together this gospel so that you would grow and be convinced in the message of Jesus. Now, the sad thing is that we can far too often forget that the simple message of who Jesus is and what he has done is for Christians at least as much as it is for unbelievers. That the gospel message is not simply a tool for evangelism that we forget once we have prayed that sinner's prayer and been uh, ushered into the halls of membership in the local Presbyterian church. We never, ever, ever outgrow the message of the gospel. There is never a point that we move on to something that is more important something that is more significant, something that is of a higher frame. Jesus' person and work is, as J.C. Ryle says, it is the sun of our system. It is the point around which everything else orbits. We can never get away from it. And that means that even catechized and systematized Bible-believing Presbyterians need to return to the story, the true historical story, of Jesus and what he has done. And we need to do it over and over and over again. So we need to know that the gospel is for Christians. And secondly, we need to know that assurance comes the more we know of Christ. One of the persistent issues that every pastor faces in his ministry is the issue of a lack of assurance of faith. It shows up in the counseling office. It shows up in discipleship meetings. It shows up in the hearts of countless believers. It is that nagging question in our hearts that says, I think I'm God's child, but how can I be sure? How can I know that I actually believe the things that I say I believe? Because one moment it seems like I do, and the next moment I face something, and my faith seems to be shattered, and I'm not even sure if I'm a Christian. And there's this constant waffling back and forth that makes us feel like we're always on edge, and it's this issue of lack of assurance. And the reason, I think, why so many are struggling with assurance is because we're looking for it in the wrong place. We believe too much the lie that says that if you want to find assurance of salvation, find it somewhere in you. If you want to be assured that you're a believer, look at your church attendance. Look at your good works. Look at how good you feel when you have your devotions in the morning. And look if you even have devotions in the morning. Maybe look at a decision that you made years ago. Look at your theological correctness if you want to know that you're a believer. All of these are good things. I wouldn't tell you not to have devotions in the morning and, and not to decide that you will follow Christ. 
that you and your household will serve the Lord. These are great things, but they are not where assurance is to be found. True certainty about the things of the gospel, true assurance of faith comes the more we look to the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. Faith has an object and faith has a subject, the one doing it and the one who is believed in. Christ is the object and assurance comes as we, the subject, look to the object, look to Jesus Christ. And that's why Luke wrote his gospel. So that friends of God could see and know the Savior who delivers them from the wrath to come. So that by looking to Jesus, our faith would be strengthened. Faith in the heart of a believer is like a feedback loop. It's a self-perpetuating cycle. It happens the more we look to Jesus and find that we believe in him. And the more we believe in him, the more we look to him. And the more we look to him, the more we believe in him. And it just goes around and around. And it's like when uh, somebody's standing too close to the microphone and suddenly there's that squeal that grows until somebody shuts off the, the, the board in the back. It takes over. Assurance is the sort of thing that we find as we look to Christ. It comes as we are more and more convinced in the witness of Scripture. Not just that we are more sinful than we could ever imagine, but as we look to see that Jesus is more capable to deal with our sins than we could ever dream possible. On February 3rd, 1890, Robert Louis Dabney received a letter. Dabney was a noted uh, Southern Presbyterian theologian. He was a teacher of teachers, widely published, widely recognized as a, a master of Presbyterian theology. But now he was in his old age. He was sick. He was blind. He was near dead. And he too was struggling with assurance of salvation. And he received a letter that came from his friend Clement Vaughn, another theologian. I want to read to you as we close just a piece of what Clement wrote. He wrote, you want more faith. Do you remember? In the stress of your trial, how faith comes. Let me remind you, although you know it. Suppose a traveler comes to a bridge, and he's in doubt about trusting himself to it. What does he do to breed confidence in the bridge? He looks at the bridge. He gets down and examines it. He doesn't stand at the bridgehead and turn his thoughts curiously in on his own mind to see if he has confidence in the bridge. If his examination of the bridge gives him a certain amount of confidence, and yet he wants more, how does he make his faith grow? Why, in the same way, he continues to examine the bridge. He continues, now, my dear old man, let your faith take care of itself for a while. And you just think of what you are allowed to trust in. Think of the master's power. Think of his love. Think how he is interested in the soul that searches for him and he will not be comforted until he finds him. Think of what he has done, his work. Jesus' blood is mightier than all the sins of all the sinners that ever lived. Don't you think it will master yours? Now may God give you grace not to lay too much stress on your faith, but to grasp the great ground of confidence, Christ. Goodbye. God be with you as he will. Think of the bridge. Dear believer, this is what we're going to be doing.
as we study the Gospel of Luke, thinking of the bridge, turning our thoughts and our gaze to him, hearing his words, watching his actions, hearing again the story of his sacrifice, his atonement, and his resurrection glory. This is what the Holy Spirit wants for his people, that we would grow in assurance of the truth of these things and that we would see the fullness of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And Lord willing, that's what we're doing in Luke as we begin. Let's pray together. Oh, great and gracious Lord, we thank you for Christ, our Savior, the one given up for the sins of wretches like us who cannot pay for our own iniquity. And yet he, in perfection, who knew no sin, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And it's true. O oh, gracious Lord, break our hearts by the truth of these things that you would remold them again after the image of Christ. Help us to look to him and to trust in him and to grow in assurance. We pray that if there are any here who do not know him and are not trusting, that you would build faith today, tomorrow, over the course of our studies. Cause them to look to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance, to see his glory and his goodness. And for those who are already yours, O oh Lord, comfort us in our affliction, in our trial, that we would look more to you and less to ourselves, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.